The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. How many people would have um, grown up or been part of a church that had um, a catechism that you were taught? Just raise your hand if you had a catechism of some kind. And um, so, so that could be that you're from a Christian Reformed background or that you're from a Presbyterian background or a Catholic background, for example, would all have a catechisms. Really, catechism is just like a, uh, if we could just describe it this way, it says, for those who don't know, it's like a primer, a primer on your faith. So kind of like the, the basics of what we believe and making sure that everybody who's part of the church kind of understands the thing that we believe. And here's what I would say about uh, catechism. We don't use that word here, uh, but we would also have kind of a primer, the basics of what we know. We would teach it in a, probably a much less formal way than what um, many other traditions would have, but would communicate, for the most part, in some of these catechisms, the same thing. For example... Uh, how many of you would be familiar with the Westminster Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Well, a number of you would know that. And the very first question, here's where I'm going with this. The very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. Uh, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him uh, forever. And, and that aligns so beautifully. Again, we don't have a formal catechism, but it aligns so beautifully with what we would teach and what we would say in our uh, primary mission statement, which is this, uh, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Uh, go, uh, go out and make disciples, uh, build a loving community of people uh, so the world knows that uh, you love them and you love one another, and uh, in doing those things, that uh, produces glory to God. In fact, the greater part of the mission, the first priority in the mission is, in fact, that we would go and do those things because we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And the common thread between the catechism and what we would teach is exactly the same. Uh, the preeminence now, listen, the preeminence of the glory of God. That is priority number one for every follower of Jesus Christ. And so, having said that, the only question then remains for you to answer, is the glory of God priority one in my life? Is it priority one in my marriage? Is it priority one in my family? If every, is every aspect of my life producing uh, the glory of God, pleasing to Him. And so as we complete this series today, um, we're in the fifth message, uh, the final message. We're going to really end with the beginning. Everything that we do must aim at the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not even a little bit about you. It's not about us. It's not about anything else. It's about Jesus Christ and his name. Amen? Amen? It's about Jesus Christ and his name and his glory. And so this series has been based in this 
a verse from Ephesians 2.10, though we've spent all of our time um, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 provided the basis for the series. We are his workmanship uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the workmanship is what he does inside of us, and the good works are what he does through us. And both of those things, the inside and what is produced outside, all of it for the glory of God. We are made for this. We are aiming to be the 5G Christians that we have defined as being something that pleases God. And again, the root of it all, the number one mission is the glory of Jesus Christ in all of this. And so we have a great passage in front of us, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 7 to 18. It's going to help us see what it takes to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us right now as we get started in working through these verses. Uh, Father, um, if I could put it this way, uh, help us all to get ourselves out of the way right now so that we can see only you. God, remove all hindrances uh, to the hearing of your word. Break down all the barriers that are in our hearts. Uh, change us to be like your son who pleased you in every way, who brought you glory in every way. God, we want to be like him today. These things we pray in his great name. Amen. Amen. All right. I am a God-glorifying Christian when, let's start with this one, uh, my righteousness displays his glory. Does your righteousness, your holiness, does it display the glory of Jesus Christ? Let's read some verses. Again, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 uh, to 18. We'll read the first few verses here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Let me pause for a second and just say what Paul is doing in this passage is he's, he's writing out a commentary on Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Those three chapters, what happened in Exodus, I'll come back to that in a second, but this is a commentary on that passage, okay? Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." He's uh, setting up a comparison here between Moses' day and now the time of Jesus Christ and the time of God's uh, spirit in the life of the individual followers of Christ and of the church. In Exodus 32 through 34, what happened uh, was the uh, children of Israel were at the, the base of Mount Sinai. Moses had gone up alone uh, to the mountain on Mount Sinai, he was communing with God. He was receiving the laws. That's the tablets of stone that are spoken of here in our passage. And, uh, but, but he spent an extraordinarily long period of time up there, so much so that the people at the base of the mountain were like, I think he's died up there. I think he's never coming back. 
We're not in Egypt anymore. We're, we're not at the promised land. We're in the wilderness. What are we going to do? So they come up with this plan. They think it's a good one. While Moses is up talking to God and getting the law, they're down below fashioning this golden idol, this calf, uh, in order to um, kind of get in their minds what their God looks like. And they were worshiping God, but they were really worshiping this idol in really a wanton and pretty disgusting way. They just couldn't patiently wait for Moses to come back. As Moses comes back down the mountain, now he's carrying the law of God with him, and he sees this, and and can I just put it this way, kind of in our language, so Moses loses it, correct? Moses loses it, and he tosses the tablets, uh, breaks them in front of the people, takes the idol, grinds it down to a powder, puts it in water, makes everybody drink it, and he, he, he brings about his own vengeance, his own punishment on the people for this gross sin that they had committed. God himself uh, brings this plague down on the people. They start to die as a result of their disobedience before the Lord. And God's kind of at the point where he's had enough with them. Moses goes back up the mountain now, and he prays interceding on behalf of the people. He starts pleading with God to have mercy in the people. And God hears his prayer. The long and the short of it is, uh, Moses goes back up on the mountain and he receives a second set of tablets that he's going to bring down to the people again. But uh, something changes. Something changes in that moment. Moses says to the Lord in, in the midst of the whole incident that he He wants to see the glory of God. He says to God, show me your glory. And so God puts him in the the fold of a rock, in the cleft of the rock, and he, he puts his hand, so to speak, covering him, and God passes by, and Moses is allowed just a glimpse of the passing glory of the back of God, not the full force of his glory, lest he be consumed. And the result of that was, after Moses has this experience, he comes back down the mountain, and you remember that he went down in front of the people, and and Moses was glowing as a result of seeing just a passing glimpse of the back of the glory of God while shielded by rock and by the hand of God. Now you would think that seeing the glory of God would be the most awesome thing and the people of Israel would be so excited. Wow, we got to see the glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. Uh, But um, that wasn't their reaction and they weren't excited even a little bit about it and in fact they were terrified in the face of it so much so that Moses had to wear a veil. Now here's the thing that, that changed is that in that moment, God's relationship with his people was about to take an alteration that his glory was going to become less obvious, less tangible. We often think about the glory of God in terms of light. It's the most common way to think about the glory of God. We think of it in terms of this bright, um, almost inexpressible light that shines and, and that somehow depicts the glory of God because that's the picture we have in places like Exodus 33. But now the glory of God was going to become, can I just use this word? It's going to become more subtle, but much more powerful, much more real to the people. Now look, look at this, back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Notice the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. And the problem they were facing was that the glory was actually fading. This was the change. 
their continued rebellions, their hardness of heart was altering the relationship with their God so that the evident glory of God was diminishing in their presence. Verse 7 goes on to say that it was being brought to an end. Paul asks the question in verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit, what's happening now in New Testament times with the Spirit of God amongst us, having, having experienced the fact that Jesus Christ came, gave his life, was resurrected and ascended, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory and the answer to that question is, yes, it's going to have more glory. There's more glory today, more evident glory in the people of God today than there was on the mountain when Moses was glowing. It's awesome what God is doing today. Verse 9, the ministry of righteousness, in fact, must far exceed it in glory. This righteousness that he's producing in us is a greater expression of the glory of God in our midst than it was for the Israelites at Sinai, verse 10 says, this is the glory that surpasses it. And he's talking, of course, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, of his presence among us, of his uh, perfection, of his fulfillment of the law of Moses and of all the prophets. And it's really in this that we begin to see what God's glory really is. It's so hard to define, in fact. And I found myself leaning heavily on many others who had sought to describe what the glory of God is, but every preacher who you read, whoever attempts to describe the glory of God, seems to just admit that they fall short of it. John MacArthur, for example, he says this, any manifestation of God's character, of his attributes in the world, in the universe, is his glory. In other words, the, the glory is to God what brightness is to the sun. What wet is to water, what heat is to fire. In other words, it is the emanation, it is the effulgence, it is the product of his presence. It is the revelation of himself. Anytime God discloses himself, it is the manifestation of his glory, his presence. And so that's, that's what it is for us. God's glory is his presence with us. And all of the effects of his presence with us, it's not as miraculous as Moses' glowing face, but it's more substantive. It's more practical. And it changes us in a more real way. And so all of that to say, because we're going after the righteousness of God here as an evidence of his glory, as the display of his glory. So when you and I pursue the holiness of God, when we pursue his righteousness in our own lives, we then emanate his glory to others. When we're holy people, when we're living for him. That's the glory of God to others. We are actually revealing Jesus Christ. We're demonstrating that his presence is in our lives. And what others should see in us is not how good we are. This isn't like a, oh, wow, look how holy that person is. Look how morally upstanding they are. Look how ordered their life is. Look how much alignment there is with the Bible. They are such a good person. It's not at all about pointing at us. Because, because you and I know, if we're truly followers of Jesus Christ, you and I know that it is not a righteousness of our own. It is not a righteousness of our own. Philippians 3.9 says, not having a righteousness of our own, 
but that which comes from Christ. It's his righteousness that clothes us in holiness. And so my righteousness displays his glory, or as John Piper said, the glory of God is the going public of his holiness. It's the going public of his holiness in each of our lives. It's like we're a walking billboard for the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and in that way we display his glory. So is that you? Would you say that your life emanates the glory of God in the manner in which you are living in conformity to the word of God? Well, that's a starting point. Then this, notice second, my, my confidence displays his glory. Let me read some more here, 12 through 16 now. Since we have such a hope, the hope of the righteousness of Christ in our lives, we are, underline these words, we are very bold. We are very bold. Uh, Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant... That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, you can't miss that we are to be, with this information we've been given, with the revelation of Jesus Christ in our lives, we are to be very bold people as a result of this hope that he gives us in Christ. More bold... I think about Moses as being quite a bold person, don't you? More bold than Moses. More bold than him. Because we have Christ. Because God's glory is revealed. Because the glory faded from Moses and the children of Israel. But it's increased in us. What the Old Testament prophesied, the New Testament realizes What was concealed in the Old Testament was revealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament awaited an unknown and unnamed Savior, and we know his name to be Jesus. And God's glory shines in the midst of it. Verse 16 is the turning point for every one of us. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Boldness and confidence are there. The glory is seen. And so we have this confidence, this boldness, the boldness of those in whom the glory of Christ resides. If if the presence of Jesus Christ is in your life, why would we ever be timid? Why would we ever be fearful? The Holy Spirit dwelling in in us provides us this boldness. Now, obviously, not everybody has this. Not everybody in Moses' day had it. Notice in verse 14, the people in Moses' day, their minds were hardened. They just didn't get it. They they, they fashioned this golden calf because they didn't get it. They saw miracle after miracle that provided their deliverance from the Egyptians. Spent a lot of time on that last year in the book of Exodus and the, the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them, the, the 10 plagues, the 10 signs that were brought down on the heads of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. They saw all of that. 
And yet somehow they still didn't get it. Their minds and their hearts were so hardened. They had a spiritual veil still over their faces. And verse 14, only through Christ can that be taken away. That was in Moses' day. Some of those who were listening to Paul's message and the whole reason why he's writing this in this letter is because there were so many that had rejected it. In fact, he's making reference to those who are Jews who were waiting for their Messiah to come and who had missed the fact that it was Jesus and they were still reading Moses expecting him to come so the veil was still there. They didn't get that Jesus had actually come. Their minds too were hardened. They were missing the glory of God in their lives and Moses' day, Paul's day, is it any different today? Why more don't see the glory of God? Why we don't notice it? Why, my, why more don't have it? You really, it, it comes down uh, to this. It's, if you don't have the glory of God in your life, if you're not experiencing his transforming presence in your life, it's because you don't want it. If you don't have it, it's because you don't want it. And it's because you've decided that there's something better than the glory of God. You've decided that the glory of, just insert your name in the blank, the glory of, of you is better than the glory of God. That, that instead of Christ being at the center, you're at the center. Instead of Christ being the one who's worshipped, you're actually the one who's worshipping yourself, that you've decided that you are preeminent in your life. But there are many here, of course, who do care, who do want it, who have asked for it, who have sought the Lord and found him, who've turned their lives over to him, as Paul says, and who are experiencing the glory of God in their lives, growing. And so they have confidence. And that translates in their lives into some pretty tangible, real things in their lives that are an obvious communication of the glory of God and the boldness that comes out of it. Let me give you some words that I think communicate Confidence, words that we can use to describe kind of the manner of our life. Um, let's put up the word unapologetic. That describes confidence, doesn't it? I'm not apologizing for what I believe. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm not ashamed of it in any way. I'm unapologetic about this manner of life that I've chosen. I'm unashamed. That's another one. Again, I'm, I'm not ashamed about any of this. I hold my head up high in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, unceasing. I think of the word relentless. There's nothing about this that has quit in me. I'm, I'm going to keep doing this for the rest of my life. My dying breath will be praise to my Savior. A whole life of unceasingly living for Him and unafraid. There's nothing anyone can ever say to me that will cause me to shrink back from my love and devotion to Jesus Christ. You see the confidence in those four, four words? You see the boldness? That's, we are very bold, Paul says. 
Okay, those are words. Now let me add some more words to that and you're gonna be, begin to see why we are the people that we are here. Because when we start talking about unapologetic, we're really talking about unapologetic preaching. The proclamation of God's word. We have no other message but what this word contains. So we don't, and you hear me say this so often, we're, we're not rounding off the edges to make this more palatable for people. We're not sprinkling sugar on top of it to make it easier for people to swallow. We're, we're not skipping any parts of what this Bible says to us. We want to hear the word of God. We want it straight from him. We need it. We're not apologizing for it in Anyway, not making excuses for it. We're listening to all the parts, the great parts, the easy parts, the hard parts, the stinging parts, all of it. Amen? All of it. Unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship. That we're, we're, we're here to lift our hands and to raise our voices and to stand before the Lord and to often weep and to be joyful in worship. And we're not ashamed of any of that. We don't care what the world would say about it. That seems awful silly that you would do that. And we don't care. We're unashamed in our worship and our expression of worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're unceasing in prayer, though some people would say prayer does not work and God does not listen or he's going to do what he wants to do anyways because he's God. Why would you ever pray? We are unceasing in our prayers. I'm going to keep uttering a conversational prayers to God throughout the day. I'm going to keep that relationship with him. There's devoted times of prayer where I'm seeking him one-on-one. -on -one. There are corporate times of prayer and we're seeking to build a relationship with our God throughout the entire length of our lives, unceasing in it. And unafraid witness, there's nothing anyone could ever say to me that would stop me from speaking the name of Jesus and inviting them into this relationship to have what I have. Nothing will cause me to shrink back from that in any way. Those of you who know us know that those are our four pillars. And understanding how those all relate to the glory of God, it's all found in the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. But we have to be so careful that we get the priorities straight of what comes first and what comes second. So in his book, Vertical Church, Pastor James McDonald says this, the problem in the church today is that we treat God's glory as a byproduct and the missional activities of the church as the primary thing when the opposite is what the scriptures demand. And so when we push the four pillars and say, these are what our church is about, these are, what, these are the things that I'm about as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we push those to the forefront, we've missed the point. When we push those to the forefront and say, the glory of God spills out of those things, wrong. Glory of God first. Vertical first, my relationship with Christ first, the preeminence of Jesus Christ in the life of this church first, the missional activities with God's glory now shining in the midst of his people with his presence evident, then the missional activities of the church flow out of that glory, the preaching of God's word, the worship of God's people, the prayers of God's people, the evangelism and witness of God's people flow out of the glory of God. Listen, vertical first, that's what gives us the confidence to do the missional activities of the church. The confidence that comes as a result of giving God his due in our lives. 
plays out in the missional activities we are given. And the glory of Jesus Christ radiates further as a result. And so what a vertical church does, whatever else we may call it, is to convey, to offer, to communicate, to dispense the glory of God. Everything we do is a conveyance of his glory. Otherwise, we are off mission. And so, as we think about this, just, just, just think about an example of, of our efforts to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ to get people to know him and be in relationship with him. And we would love to invite uh, so many people to come and be a part of this. And so many of you who are sitting there have come to faith in Christ as a result of being invited or finding out about this church and coming and hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving your life to him. But it's not at all about techniques, though we would teach techniques. Though we would uh, produce invitation cards and we would say to you, take those, give them to your friends, get them here, knowing that that's the number one way that someone's going to come to faith in Christ because you invited them. So we give you the means, we give you the tool. We've even offered at times, here's different ways to explain the gospel. You can tell people to come and see, you can share your story. You can explain the gospel. We've shown you four or five different ways. You can even, even explain the gospel. It's all technique. And it's not wrong. But it's not about the techniques first. It's about the heart of passion that's inside of you to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's about getting face to face with God first. And making sure you're so in, on fire for him. You're so emanate, the, emanating the glory of God in your own life that people are then naturally attracted, not because you invited them, but because the Holy Spirit's so evident in your life. They want to know what that's about. That's the glory of God that does the evangelizing then. And so it's not at all in our own strength or our ingenuity or our success, not in any way but it's actually rooted in the confidence that we have because the Holy Spirit is with us. We're not enamored by any of the success or any of the techniques. We don't think that that's the reason at all, though we use them. But it's in the cultivated relationship with Christ that we're so, we're not enamored with those other things, we're enamored with Him. We're consumed with Him. And when you're so consumed with the glorious God, there's no room for fear. There's no room for shame. There's no room for apology. There's only boldness to do the things that he's laid on our hearts to do. And I, I want us to press in so deeply to this, to this relationship with him, this face-to-face -face with him. Augustine helps us because the face of God is so lovely, my brothers and sisters, so beautiful. Once you have seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give insatiable satisfaction of which we will never tire and we shall always be hungry and always have our fill. You see, for the 5G Christian, you pursue that, everything else, everything else pales next to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Everything else pales next to his glory. And we are made to be glorifying 
his name, pointing to him, relying on him, desiring him above all things. Great confidence then flows from that in the good works that he assigns to us. You doing okay? Still with me? Yeah? Number three. Look at this next. My freedom displays his glory. Check out verse 17. Now the Spirit... The Lord is spirit. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, what does it say? There's freedom. There's freedom. And when I have the spirit, again, remember, MacArthur told us off the top, the glory of God is his presence among us, his presence and his power. And so when I have the Spirit of God in my life, His presence and power, then I have the glory of God residing in me, and that produces, according to verse 17, that produces freedom. I am free, but so many of us, certainly those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, you are shackled to so many things you don't even know it. But those of us who are in Christ, we kind of spend our lives trying to get ourselves free of all these Enslaves, enslavements that we find ourselves in. So let's look at, um, let's look at seven of these very quickly. I'm, I'm free, first of all. I'm free from condemnation. Some of you still, still carrying around sin that you ought not to carry around. I mean, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, all of your sin got laid on Jesus Christ. He died for it all, correct? Died for it all. Is your th- theology straight? Did he die for it all? Yeah, all of it, all of it. And some of us are still like not at the place where we've realized that God has forgiven us of every single sin. Doesn't matter how heinous it was, how painful it was, how much you hurt someone else, how much you damaged and hurt your own life, how much scar tissue you're carrying around as a result, how many consequences you're facing. Doesn't matter. Forgiven, forgiven. Jesus said, it's finished, it's finished. Could you say it for yourself now? It's finished. It's finished in my life. Jesus proclaimed it to be finished. And so, listen, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. No condemnation. So stop carrying that around, not shackled to pass sin. Um, How about this? Um, uh, Free, I'm free from expectation. I'm not enslaved to people's opinions of me. Sometimes I write stuff in my sermons and I know I'm writing it especially for me. Okay, sometimes I write stuff and I go, well, I don't know if anybody else is going to benefit, but I need to hear that again. This is a pastor disease, by the way, enslaved to the opinions of others, but it's not just a pastor disease, is it? No? A few of you, a little too enslaved to what people think of you and people's expectations of you. I'm not enslaved to people's opinions of me. I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God, Paul says. Well, I'm trying to seek the approval of God. I'm not seeking the approval of men. If I were still seeking the approval of men, he said, I would not be a servant of God. So I'm not seeking your approval. I'm seeking God's approval. I'm not trying to meet your expectations. I'm trying to meet God's expectations. I think our church is going to go along just fine if I figure that out. I think your life and your family and your marriage are going to go real well if you 
uh, get the expectations of Jesus Christ in first place. Remember again our verse, Ephesians 2.10. We are, whose workmanship? God's workmanship. We're his workmanship. No one else is shaping you and crafting you and making you into anything. God's making you into something. Okay, so I'm free from expectation, I'm free of bitterness. I'm not holding on to offenses committed against me. That's, that's, a, that's a matter of forgiveness. If you've forgiven everybody, if you haven't, if you haven't, if there's someone who's done something horrible to you, and I get that some of these hurts can be very deep and painful, but if you're holding on to that unforgiveness and you still have bitterness in your heart, there's only one person who's enslaved. Oh, that's you. You gotta let go of that. There's just no room for it. Remember how Jesus taught us how to pray in, in Matthew 6? In the forgiveness part, um, we ask him, uh, forgive us our, I'll give you the King James Version here, forgive us our trespasses. What was the manner in which we are to have our trespasses forgiven by God? The manner in which is as? Uh, oh, oh, so the standard is how we forgive. Ouch. One, two, three, four. I'm free of hatred. I love all as Christ loved all. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for them. Do nice things for the enemies. I mean, is there anybody you hate? People of color? The opposite gender for some reason? The old, the young? The left, the right? Straight or gay? Are you enslaved in any way to hatred? It just seemed to me that Jesus didn't have any room for that. My freedom displays his glory. Number five of pride. I'm free of pride. I'm humble before the Lord, knowing that he alone lifts me up. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he, at the right time, he will lift you up. No lifting of yourself up. That's really the root of all of our sin right there. I'm free of deception. I know the word of God is the light to my path and that the world, the devil, and my flesh are liars. Okay, the world is a liar. The devil's definitely a liar. And my flesh is a liar. John 8, 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Amen? You've got to be free of that. Finally, this. I'm free of fear. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. I smell a seven-part series there at some point, right? So, so if we weren't so locked into the Gospel of Luke, maybe by 2019 we could get to this. I don't know. Um, when you live with that kind of freedom, the glory of... Does it make sense? When you live with that kind of freedom, the glory of God's going to be obvious in your life, right? It's going to be pretty obvious.
All right, finally this, I'm a God-glorifying Christian when my transformation displays his glory. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. That's continuous action. Are being transformed, okay? Not, not arrived yet. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You can't miss that this is a process in each of our lives. No one is expecting anyone else to have arrived. No one is expecting in this room, like let's lay down an expectation, God doesn't expect this of us, therefore we should not expect of anyone in this room that they have arrived and have achieved some kind of perfection in the Christian walk. We should never expect that of anyone. Now, I haven't said it for a while, but I'll, I'll say it here again that you know, your elders love you so much and pray for you regularly and care for you in so many ways you don't even know. Um, and when, when an elder is coming uh, towards you uh, to greet you, you should uh, receive that elder warmly and they're gonna receive you warm, warmly and you should greet them and, and just enjoy fellowship with you. But I've told you before that if, if two elders are coming towards you, it, it might not be the conversation you're expecting. Not very often, but from time to time, uh, something comes to the attention of the elders that requires them to address it in an intervention where two elders might have to actually show up at your door, uh, knock on the door and come in and talk to you about something. And again, we would play that card very, very carefully and infrequently, but sometimes it's necessary. And I would say this about our elders because this is like a guiding principle on this is that our heart is never ever to come to bring punitive action against anyone who's been caught in a sin. It's never to bring about punishment. But the question we always ask ourselves at the elders table whenever we're considering having to do this, the question we always ask is, when we go and see the person is, how can we help you walk in obedience to Christ? How can we help you? Why do we ask that question? Because none of us have arrived. None of us is at the place where it's easy at all for us to pick up a stone and start hurling it. That we too are struggling along in our own walk with Christ. And so we would come humbly to say, how can we help you back up off the ground? How can we walk together in the strength of God's Holy Spirit? How can we more fully display the glory of Christ, recognizing we're all being transformed into the same image? From one degree of glory to the next, Hopefully along the way, more glory than last year, more glory than the year before that, one more degree of glory as I mature in Christ and become increasingly like him. The glory of God is the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, um, you know, we've already said in this series previously, one of the other G's, this is made to be glorifying, but we already said we're made to be growing. That's what this is speaking of, and it's the glory of God being revealed in us. And we are also, and this is so important, and this refers back to the way the elders would come and talk to you about anything, because we want that actually to happen in every 
relationship in the church. That's what uncommon community really is. But we are not only made to be growing and made to be glorifying, but we're made to be, remember the first one? Made to be gracious. And so when I go having to speak truth into someone's lives, I'm going to do that graciously. And when I'm on the receiving end of that, I'm going to receive that graciously. Because that's what we have been made to do. And in every one of these ways, radiating the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it takes to be a God-glorifying Christian. We are his workmanship. So one, one, just one final thought as we wrap not only this message but this series, and it, it really comes to us uh, from C.S. Lewis as he talks about glory and the beauty of all of this. Again, thinking that we're the workmanship of Jesus Christ in all of these things as we seek to be 5G Christians. Lewis said this, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and impossible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us, shall please God, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is, you and I are made for this. Amen? Amen, church? Praise God. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.